This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We'll be talking about the fixed income market, alternatives, what's going on. We have two great guests, Eric Felder, who is CEO of Molith Asset Management, James Pomisiano, who's managing partner, chief investment officer of Gracie Asset Management. They work closely together. Eric, maybe we could start with you. Just tell us a little bit about your background. It looks like you were co-head of Global Fixed Income at Lehman Brothers uh, before going to Barclays and now the CEO of, of Molas. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what, what you experienced there at, at, uh, at Lehman. Uh, sure. Um, so I actually uh, I graduated Wharton in, uh, in 1993. And uh, then I actually spent a year at D.E. Shaw, the hedge fund in New York. Then I went on to Lehman Spent most of my time in the in the credit space, everything from origination to secondary trading, and then ultimately uh, at the end uh, was co-head of fixed income uh, just a week before we filed, and then moved on to Barclays. Uh, spent a bunch of time in London, which was fantastic. Uh, ended up running all of global markets, sales and trading at Barclays, and then I went to Magnetar, uh, hedge fund based in Chicago. Uh, after that, I was at Citadel. Uh, based in New York, and now finally uh, in March, I uh, I joined Molus Asset Management as the CEO. So tell us a little bit about what is what is Molus. Yeah, so we're uh, just under a seven billion asset manager. Uh, we have a number of underlying businesses focused uh, on largely on the credit space. Uh, we have a lower middle market direct lending business uh, that's called Freeport Financial. We have a CLO business called Steel Creek. We have a long short hedge fund business focused on credit, which is Gracie, which uh, James, who joins me, is, is running. Uh, we also have a fintech venture capital fund that's called Crossbeam. And then we also have a private equity seeding platform that's called Archean. So uh, a nice, well-rounded portfolio of different products spanning everything from private equity uh, all the way to long-short credit. It sounds like a lot of different topics we can drill in with you in, in the future. But I guess today we've got James from, from Gracie. So, James, tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about what you're focused on uh, at Gracie. Sure. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having us. I know uh, we've tried to connect in the past and really look forward to today's uh, conversation. Uh, as Eric mentioned, uh, I run Gracie Asset Management, which is uh, a family, uh, is the management company for a family of hedge funds. And we're wholly owned by uh, Molus Asset Management, as Eric mentioned. Uh, we started our life as uh, as an independent hedge fund and actually did uh, a transaction with Molus in 2010. So we've been part of the Molus family uh, since 2010. 
our core DNA is around credit uh, in the long short space and broader fixed income as well. Uh, today, we have a family of hedge funds uh, that focus on credit, on long short credit, and uh, in preferred and uh, uh, hybrid securities. And uh, you know, we, we think the latter is is something that's uh, you know one of the more overlooked sectors in in the market, and we're we're excited to talk about it today. Uh, interestingly enough, Eric and I, uh, although he joined uh, Molis uh, last year, um, we've known each other for for 20 years and have you know uh, spent a lot of time looking at financials. I actually started uh, right out of college with the FDIC during the SNL crisis, so for the first five years of, of my career, I had a crash course in, in bad credit and bad banking and, and uh, failing banks, uh, and that stuck with me. And it's, it's ironic that we've come full circle. Eric has had a similar experience uh, in, in financial. So together, we really, uh, you know, we're sort of meant to be at this point. Well, the fixed income market is sort of very – it's one of those key challenges we talk a lot about. Um, I don't know who wants to, to, to start off with. Just when you, when you look at the high level where we are in interest, the interest rate cycles or historically low rates gives people challenges for – I'm sure you're dealing with a lot of pension institutions being on the, the institutional sort of hedge fund type stuff. How are you thinking about just the the return environment people have here given the challenge of historically low yields? Uh, yeah, it's it's Eric. I, I, you, you hit on a, a very topical point. Uh, just to put some some numbers around it uh, to highlight the challenge to find yield. If you look across the world right now, over eighty percent of all of the bonds outstanding yield under two percent. Uh, most of them are taxable. Given where rates are, we're also at at or near record high durations uh, at the same point. And we also have the dynamic that a lot of the underlying ingredients for inflation are starting to head upwards. You're at five-year highs across all agricultural commodities. We've hit almost 10-year highs on break-evens for inflation in both five and 10 years, hitting almost 2.3%. And yet you still have essentially insatiable demand to look for yield across the universe. And when you start going across the whole world, you have that 2% dynamic, but you have large chunks of the entire marketplace that are actually negative. So we have over $18 trillion of negative yielding debt. And, for example, if you look at the corporate market in Europe, you have just 40 basis points for the investment-grade credit universe in Europe. And, in fact, over 40% of even the corporate bonds have a negative yield in Europe. So that leaves the U.S. market in a very interesting spot because the yield, despite being at or near record lows, look very compelling compared to what is available in the rest of the world. And in our opinion, the money across all of the world has become increasingly fungible and it finds its way to the to the best risk adjusted returns. And so as we look at the fixed income markets now, and it's why we're so excited about preferreds, is we feel that at a point where you have record high durations, record low yields, and in many cases, record low spreads, your cost of being wrong is as high as it's ever been. And going down in credit quality, we feel at this point, you're better off going down in the capital structure or taking incremental structural risk to pick up that incremental yield. So just to give you some context, and then I'll, I'll turn it to James, 
if you look at the overall high yield index and you look all the way down to triple C's, the lowest credit quality, we're almost at 6% for the triple C part of the marketplace. You have a high yield market overall that now almost yields 4%. Uh, in many cases, in the higher quality, you're in, into 2 and 3%. When you look at the preferred universe, you can find many securities that are large and liquid. That market overall is now $1.1 trillion in size. It's almost the same size as the entire high-yield market. And the yields there are comparable to, to the middle-quality part of the high-yield market, yet your issuers, 96% of them are investment-grade rated, and 75% are heavily regulated, meaning utilities, insurance companies, and banks. And we just went through a real-life stress test in 2020, uh, obviously in, for an unfortunate reason. And the banking system came out uh, and, and made it through with flying colors, uh, given all of the capital that had built up and the increased regulation that we saw coming out of, of the global financial crisis. So when we look across the fixed income universe, uh, the preferred and hybrid market stands out to us as, as a very interesting one, just given yeah. that the yields are are compelling to everything else in fixed income, especially in regard to the, the risk. They also serve a really good part diversifying a portfolio, which I'll turn over to James to run through. Yeah, James, before we get in too deep there, let, yeah, sure. tell us a little bit. So, I mean, you, you, people often talk equities. They often talk bonds. This hybrid of a preferred for people who you know aren't as familiar with what the, the structure and what, what it is, maybe just give a little bit more on the preferred structure, what it you know what it is, and, and then go into like how they how you know what their those characteristics and the yields today. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. It's a great it's a great question. Uh, you know, even investment professionals tend to overlook uh, the preferred market. Uh, and preferred is sort of in quotes. It, it, it means different things to different people, but. It's about a trillion-dollar market today, which is almost the size of the high-yield market. And when you look at sort of the, uh, you know, the, the coverage that you get of high-yield versus uh, the preferred market, uh, it, it's dramatically different. It's, it's completely overlooked. And as Eric mentioned, the raw material in preferred in terms of yield and spread uh, is comparable to high-yield, but you're getting it from uh, higher-quality uh, issuers uh, by being, going down the cap structure. So there's no free lunch, uh, obviously. So how can you get equal type yields uh, from better issuers uh, that, that uh, you know, from better issuers and more, just as liquid or maybe more liquid? Uh, and it comes down to structure. So the types of preferreds in the market uh, vary quite a bit. And uh, they generally vary around how they pay uh, interest or, uh, or dividends and whether they pay a fixed coupon for a long period of time, uh, or maybe there is a fixed-to-floating component. So there are all these subsets of, of, issue, of securities in the preferred space. Another important element to keep in mind, I think when most folks think about, uh, about preferreds, they think about the $25 par varieties that maybe you see uh, in the Wall Street Journal or you see uh, on, in, in other publications. That represent, represents around 15 or 20% of the market. More like 80, 85% of the market is what we would call institutional uh, type preferreds. And that would be more like $1,000 par. So they trade more like corporate bonds. Generally, there was an absolute explosion of issuance uh, in these securities. It was essentially a watershed event uh, after the great financial crisis. So what happened was the regulators basically told financial institutions that the only securities they can issue 
that would get regulatory capital treatment would be those that could absorb losses. So common equity and relatively straightforward preferred with different flavors of mechanisms. But the market today is about five times what it was in uh, prior to the great financial crisis. And that's really what we think is one of the most overlooked parts of the space, um, that there's this diversity and, and opportunity in the market. Not only that, I, uh, uh, as uh, Professor Siegel obviously talks a lot about, is sort of this uh, you know, stocks for the long run. A big component of that has been dividends to drive the engine of returns for stocks over time. And you can't argue with that. Uh, I think a lot of people certainly agree with that. Uh, but when you look at preferreds, particularly relative uh, to this explosion in time where there's been issuance, returns for preferreds uh, are better than high yield, even though they're better quality. They're far better than investment grade. And they approach uh, equity, uh, at least on a, on a percentage basis. And when adjusted for volatility, they look very, very good. So I would say the power of the dividends that are responsible for the compounding of long-term equity returns exist in preferreds today. And when you think about the S&P's preferred, uh, I'm sorry, the S&P's common dividend at around 150, you know, we're talking about on average 4 and 5% dividends today. You know, even with 2% growth rates for common dividends, it would take 30 years for those dividends to reach the level of even current preferred. So there's a really, really interesting uh, earnings dynamic, return dynamic, and then structural. And I, I can uh, throw it over to Eric maybe to talk about some, some of the detailed structures, uh, if you care. I mean, there's this. There's so many. I guess in terms of the return payoff that that you get. So you have, um, you know, the what you just talked about. And so there are these hybrid securities that mix between debt and and equity. They got some, you know, a lot of characteristics of traditional fixed income. Tell us about the the equity risk component to them. Why are there? Why have you know? What is their upside to just their high current incomes? Uh, you know, I know. Uh, and then we could talk a little bit about the, the types of companies that are issuing them. They tend to be very bank-heavy. You know, is there a reason why it's, it's banks versus other sectors? But, but give us a little bit on, on uh, the equity component to their returns. Sure. So uh, sure. It, Go ahead, Eric. Yeah. Yeah. So, so James had mentioned you needed to have the ability uh, to take losses. And so that's really where the equity component, component comes in. And there are two different structures, the European structure, which is called contingent capital, actually has it built into the instrument itself, a mechanism whereby if equity capital were needed, where you went below a predetermined trigger, your security would actually turn into the common equity of that entity. Uh, That's the European structure. On the the U.S. side, it's not explicitly... uh, it, that does not explicitly happen as a feature, but what would happen, uh, not dissimilar to uh, a bond, but in the bond, if you don't make the payment, you're in default. On a preferred, you have the ability to not make a coupon payment. Some of those securities are cumulative, whereby if you didn't make them, they keep accruing, and then if they make them again, you, make, you get made whole, and others are not. So that creates pricing differences. But then if the entity were to get into trouble, you are next in line right after the common equity shareholder as far as loss absorption. And you are subordinated to all other forms of debt, everything from secure debt all the way down to junior subordinated debt. You are you're behind all of that. 
So what you really what you really have to focus on is how large is your equity cushion below you and how strong an entity are you investing in in order to calibrate the right risk reward of the preferred part of the cap structure. But in a bankruptcy, you would end up with the lowest recovery uh, other than common equity in the cap structure based on that subordination. Now, your second question on why, why are the banks big issuers, a lot of why preferreds and hybrids are issued are to meet rating agency and regulatory requirements around capital. And so that's why you see 75% of the universe are issued by regulated entities because they're essentially being directed by a combination of regulatory bodies, both local and global, along with rating agencies on how much of this equity capital that they need in their capital structure. So it, it becomes prescribed. That's very interesting. We're talking with Eric Felder of, of Molus Asset Management. We've got James Pomisciano of Gracie Capital. The uh, the the interesting thing. So you know, you talked about the contingent convertibles in Europe, and so they may have been two percent of securities um, before, and but up to a quarter recently. Is it is that is that structure just for Europe? Is that structure potentially going to come towards U.S. type institutions, or is it just specific to Europe? The COCO structure is the European structure. Uh, we would not expect that to come to the U.S. But I think the one important dynamic that, that highlights what you just mentioned, uh, as a follow-on to, to James, who highlighted that the space has grown fivefold in, in just over a decade, you also end up with continual changes from a regulatory perspective on which structures make sense. And so... Uh, Europe has their structure. The U.S. has has their structures. And, for example, an interesting uh, evolution last year that occurred was up in Canada, where they also issue uh, preferreds and hybrids. A tax-deductible structure was created uh, in Canada. So we would expect the Canadian banks to continue to issue that new structure and then take out the structures that are in the marketplace now, which are have now all of a sudden become more expensive because of the new structure. And so one int- very interesting dynamic that we end up seeing in preferreds and hybrids is as the rules change, you end up with continual issuance of the new structures. And then you end up with very interesting opportunities on the legacy securities, which ultimately need to get taken out of the marketplace either via liability management, tenders, or at their call dates. And one very topical piece of this uh, is around the LIBOR transition, which I'm uh, I'm sure uh, folks have been interested in. Given that you have about $800 of the preferred and hybrid space has some form of a tie to LIBOR as a benchmark, we're expecting to see a lot of activity over the next few years as LIBOR is phased away. As f- which will drive significant issuance and also very interesting secondary opportunities. 
You know, one of the, the things you, you see a lot of high yield strategy. You guys talked about the size of this market versus high yield. Um, but, but but maybe do you see a lot of preferred managers in this space? I mean, you don't certainly see in the active fund world or sort of sort of traditional mutual fund ETF world that I traffic in. You don't see anywhere near as many as preferred type strategies as you do traditional high yield type strategies. Any commentary on on how whether it's alternative managers uh, are focused on this space? Yeah, Jeremy, this is James. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right, and uh, it, it's it's an interesting uh, it, it's an interesting phenomenon given how big the market is. What you do see is you see a lot of uh, funds or investment funds uh, that have sleeves of of investing in these securities, but very little sort of dedicated resources uh, in in the market. And we think, frankly, that's that's an opportunity. Uh, there are barriers to entry. Uh, in terms of understanding uh, these securities, as, as Eric touched on before, the vast majority of the issuers are investment grade, generally because a lot of them are financials, and financials tend not to last very long without investment grade ratings. So from a following perspective, uh, yet these securities, uh, because they're down the cap structure, are high yield. So you generally don't have a lot of dedicated research following uh, in, in the space. Then there's also a, a complexity around the securities, uh, and there's a, an important distinction uh, around the complexity for these securities that I think limits the competition as well. Uh, so if you look at the callability of securities, say mortgages, it's generally driven on purely economic, uh, uh, it's purely economic decision. So is the uh, existing security more expensive than the security that can be issued? If that's the case, the existing security is called away and a replacement funding is, is put in place. What's, what, what happens in this space is it's very quantitative for sure. There's an assessment uh, of, of the value of securities in the market versus where an issuer can replace them at cheaper levels. But because, of, because a lot of these securities have been issued due to capital directives by the regulators or by rating agencies or even for taxing authorities, there's a whole slew of qualitative reasons why, uh, why firms uh, would call these or not call these. And to kind of get back to your question about the, the equity comparison, this is a form of equity, but it obviously doesn't have infinite upside the way common equity does. But it also doesn't just trade at par all the time. Because of all this structural, these structural issues, getting back to there's no free lunch, causes security, these securities in this space to trade at discounts and provide opportunity for securities uh, selection. Um, so I think you know, those, are, those are some interesting elements around the space that you, they tend to keep uh, the competition low, at least at this point. I also just don't think there's an appreciation of how big the market has become. Again, a five-fold increase since the great financial crisis. Um, what's interesting, you know, as institutional investors uh, like Eric and I, what's nice about this space is that in terms of liquidity, being able to buy something and, and build a position as well as exit when the position works uh, is far easier than it is in traditional high yield uh, and maybe not as good as investment grade, but pretty close. And given the return profile, uh, makes it really attractive. So, yeah, we, we do not find uh, there's an enormous amount of competition in the space, but believe there are real barriers uh, to entry. And as I mentioned, uh, I've been looking at this stuff you know, since the early 90s, right out of college, uh, as has Eric. And it's embarrassing to say, but, you know, we've, we've spent 60 years combined in this space and have followed uh, the trends around, uh, around how 
capital directives and tax incentives and things like that have changed in this space, and that's required to really understand these. Uh, and it really puts an emphasis on uh, active management in the space, and we think there's a real opportunity there. In the alternatives world, you get to do some shorting of things that are long and short. Is there anything that you drives your, your short decisions? And when people sort of look for the alternative place in portfolios, are they where do you think they're funding this? If you take you know the standard 60-40, which is challenged by these, these low yields, um, maybe sort of talk about your short opportunities and then how that all fits together in a portfolio. Maybe James? Sure. Um, yeah, so clearly people are struggling with, with 60-40. The, the key, uh, we think, on adding uh, anything in, into a portfolio is you always want to try to add something that is, is uncorrelated to the rest of your portfolio but then generates uh, a good sharp and a good risk return. So a, a really good starting point uh, when evaluating preferreds as far as adding it to an existing portfolio that has a mixture of some equities and, and some other bonds. And some of these numbers would probably be surprising to people, but preferreds, because of the fixed to floating nature, actually has a very low correlation to treasuries. It's under 20% correlation to intermediate treasuries. At the same time, you also have approximately a 50% correlation to stocks, and you also have uh, under a 50% correlation to, to high yield and to an investment grade. So it's essentially an asset class that does have equity features and debt features, but combined leaves it as a bit of an idiosyncratic asset class with reasonably low correlations to other asset classes, and then at the same time, you're picking up more yield than you can find in most of those other asset classes. So if, if, you, if you ran the math on adding a preferred to a 60-40 portfolio, you would in all likelihood lower your volatility and increase your return, which is, is what you're typically looking to do in, in a portfolio. Uh, one other thing uh, as far as looking at the return profile and it doesn't apply to everybody, but a large portion of the marketplace, the interest payments are tax advantaged. So they end up getting taxed at long-term capital gains instead of at ordinary income, which can provide another incremental positive for taxable investors, especially since the only tax-advantaged part of the marketplace at this point are municipals where you have record low yields and record high duration. So we also think that that, that piece and that feature of a large part of this market is compelling for, for taxable investors as well. Yeah, if I could just add uh, quickly on the 60-40 question, uh, it, it's one of the biggest challenges in, uh, in, in institutional uh, asset management at the endowment level or the pension level because – most uh, endowments or pension funds uh, need to be around in perpetuity. And obviously, following Professor Siegel's uh, guidance, uh, they want to have as much equity exposure as they possibly can, can stomach. And historically, they've used long-term treasuries as a cushion to be able to provide uh, some sort of protection in down markets, to provide some income to help pay the bills when, when equities are not performing. Because of where interest rates are, 
and how uh, how they seem like they'll be for the next uh, you know intermediate period, uh, that doesn't work as well anymore. So a lot of institutional investors are trying to figure out where can we find something that does well uh, when the markets sell off and provide some kind of cushion, but also provides an income source to be able to meet our expenses or maybe to fund longer dated investment ideas like private equity or or venture funds. So the 60-40 issue is really a big challenge and and we think that uh you know the preferred and hybrid space seems to be at least actively managed seems to be a good idea to to fit in there. Yeah, no, we've been saying that on this program for some time that we thought uh, treasuries, or at least Professor Eagle's been echoing, treasuries have been what he thinks are the single worst asset class. Uh, he's starting to say that middle of last year. Certainly been true so far. Uh, this preferreds looks like a very interesting way to get income, sort of this nice correlation balance. Uh, sort of really interesting segment here. Um, we have to wrap it here with, but but Eric Felder, James Palmisciano, it's been really interesting. Thanks for you both for, for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jeremy. The comments, views, opinions, and any forecasts of future events, returns, or results expressed in an interview or podcast reflect the opinion of the speaker, are subject to change without notice, do not reflect actual investment results, are not guarantees of future events, returns, or results, and are not intended to provide investment advice, legal advice, or tax advice. This interview or podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing discussed constitutes an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to buy or sell any security or other financial product, including investment in any Gracie Asset Management private investment fund or any other affiliated entity. Offers to sell or solicitations to invest in a fund are only made by means of the confidential offering memorandum to sophisticated investors meeting certain suitability standards who fully understand and are willing to assume the risk involved and in accordance with applicable securities laws. Investors may lose all or a substantial part of their investment. Past performance may not be indicative of future results, and there's no guarantee that any fund or strategy will meet its investment objective or be profitable. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy of information provided in the interview or podcast. Certain information discussed constitutes forward-looking statements, which reflect the speaker's current expectations and projections about future events. Forward-looking statements include, but are not limited to, key themes, assumptions, estimates, beliefs, and opinions, which by their nature involve numerous risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied by the forward-looking statements. No representation or warranty is made as to the reasonableness or completeness of such forward-looking statements, and the speaker does not undertake any obligation to update or revise any forward-looking statements whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.